Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and joining me a little bit later on today, it is Tanel Slam CEO Dan Sutton. He's going to be here to talk about how BC's newly proposed vaping regulations will impact the cannabis sector. We'll talk about more going on in the cannabis industry as well. But before we get there, Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Focus and Electron Communications consultant Matthew Klippenstein, they are here to dish on the latest tech industry news. So let's join them now and maybe we'll kick off the discussion with some Cyber Monday chatter. And joining us today to talk about the latest industry news, it is our BIV tech panel featuring Glue Technology Society's Linda Focus and Electron Communications, Matthew Klippenstein. Linda, Matthew, thank you both for joining us on the show. Hi, guys. Good morning. Glad you survived Cyber Monday there. Tyler. Well, I was going to ask you guys this. We, we just cracked Cyber Monday yet again, and there's another record, $9.4 billion U.S. This is south of the border. This is according to Adobe Analytics. So no data available just yet for Canada. But I think what we can gather is that there's probably about a billion dollars, Canadian dollars, I should say, in sales on Cyber Monday alone. So I'll throw it to you guys. I mean, are we seeing that? Is it worth it for consumers at this point if we are seeing like this much interest in it? Um, I don't know. Uh, Matthew, you, you take it off here. Sure. Well, I think that um, the uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday uh, clearly is a new Boxing Day in that um, uh, we have so much attention offered uh, south, south of the border. Uh, as you noted in some other notes, uh, Tyler, this, this uh, Black Friday thing really began when we were at a strong currency position about 10 years ago with the states, and so there was a need to align things. But it does make sense as well in that uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Cyber Monday especially is the last big shopping day or holiday, big sale day ahead of a major holiday, which is Christmas. Uh, when I was growing up, my Eastern Orthodox friends used to love Boxing Day because that was like a humongous price discounted holiday right before their Christmas, which was January the 6th. So uh, that's yeah. a great deal to uh, snag if you can. Yes, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What about you? I mean, like, first of all, Linda, did you make any big purchases like over uh, the, the last couple days, either online or in store? Yes, we um, over in the glue world, we have all of our um, digital shopping done for all of our WordPress extensions, mm. all of our subscriptions, all of our app subscriptions. Those are all done in this weekend, and we save our cyber, our digital life. We save huge money. Um, by by making those annual subscriptions roll over on this weekend. So yeah, that's big mm. um, in terms of our digital purchases. I didn't bother personally doing any of it. I don't, I'm not a real shopper. I love shopping online. I do most of my shopping online, but I just don't really care enough about, I didn't need anything, I guess. I guess if I was looking for something, I might have gone to the effort. But it seems like a a lot of stuff is on sale that I don't need. Yeah. Right. But, you know, I was impressed by the numbers 9.4 billion in the States. And between 10 and 2 a.m., the Americans were spending $500 million an hour. So there's a lot of late night shopping. This is not even a shopping day that existed, you know, uh, going back into the early 2000s, for example. It was just something that we've kind of developed over the last 10 or 15 years. So it's kind of interesting to have yet another, you know, break for retailers, especially in Canada. If you've got Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Boxing Day, it just keeps kind of piling up for Canadian retailers, which uh, is not too bad. I like Boxing Day being a party day. I like the idea that we're not shopping. You're getting over Christmas if mm -hmm. you're doing that sort of thing. You're going to see friends. You're hanging out. Um, I like that that's not maybe a good 
a big shopping day for you, people. You're not somebody who's rampaging through malls and pushing over like children Good to Lord. get a Furby or anything Thank like Thank goodness. That. I've yeah. never, ever <laughs> Furbied. <laughs> Uh, no Furby. Okay. Well, Matthew, I understand you did make a purchase uh, over this. Uh, t- tell me yeah. what was going on. So um, uh, as we alluded to in prior episodes, I did uh, break down and get a Fitbit, which amusingly was uh, uh, Google recently <clears throat> Google recently put in an offer for, which was uh, something that I was worried about uh, data-wise. But uh, I can live with that ultimately, uh, especially if I got a decent deal on a uh, Cyber Monday type sale, or slightly prior to Cyber Monday. Uh, we did also renew some of our online subscriptions this uh, past weekend on account of the timeliness of uh, uh, Black Friday week, perhaps we could call it sales, for, uh, for online subscriptions. So uh, yes, that's, that's actually something I'll have to make sure I do going forward because this is a reliable discounting time of year for that. We found it to be really reliable, so much so that we, we have changed our whole calendar for all of our digital wow. purchases around it. Yeah. So that, that's interesting that it is having those tangible effects on right. like organizations. It's the Super Bowl of uh, online subscription renewals. And you get to do it during a, a normal work week, roughly, right. rather yeah, than right. having to send someone in over the holidays <laughs> to hit the buy button. Well, one other trend that uh, Adobe also pointed out here, though, is that with regards to buy online, pick up in store, that trend was up 41% year over year. This is something that's kind of appealing because, like, don't you get stressed if you're waiting for, like, maybe the mail delivery person to just drop something off? Are, are they going to put it in front of your door? Is it going to get snatched if you live in a building? Are they going to be able to get in? I like the idea of, you know, maybe I get off work and then I go pick something up from the store down the street. Uh, where are you guys at with this? Yeah, the olds at Glue do that all the time. They live in a lot of buildings that the Amazon or the delivery guy can't get into easily. They're very concerned about packages getting stolen. So that is uh, something that they're taking to is the pickup in store. And also, you know, stores like London Drugs will allow you to order online and and buy in store. So if they're concerned about using their credit card online, that's a way to kind of have this hybrid in real life and Mm. online experience with shopping. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I did get into it over Twitter with London Drugs, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before, because they made an announcement that they were launching, um, I think it was same-day shipping or, or same-day or same pickup uh, for the first time ever. And then somebody found a story that I wrote five years ago <laughs> where it was talking about London Drugs announcing that they were going to be introducing this for the first time ever. and. Right. I, I don't know. I had to talk to them back and forth, and they kept insisting, well, no, we're relaunching it now. First time ever twice. Well, exactly. Right. And I was just like, okay, well, it, it's not exactly what it said in the press release, but uh, I, I was kind of curious about I do that, that a fair bit with the electronics stores. If we're buying something, I mm-hmm. don't want to have to deal with the sales guys, or right. we know exactly what we're getting. We'll just pick it up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely order right. it. Yeah. Just have it at the desk waiting for yeah. us. Andy. We do a fair bit of uh, Bopis, this uh, buy online pickup store, because then we can shop uh, after our kids are asleep, you know, nice, uh, quiet, relative time. And then um, as we do a reasonable amount of commuting, we can re- more easily work our schedule around, you know, stopping out slightly to make a bit, bit of a detour to go to the shopping mall, to the store. Yeah rather than waiting on the vagaries of Canada Post or other delivery services to deliver to our apartment. And um, picking up at during business hours at a pickup spot 
Uh, some third-party location is always much more difficult because we don't know which one it's going to be at and so forth. Yeah, and we've got buildings who are even taking this at heart. You know, New York has been leading this way for some time. So an entire building will have an Amazon or a delivery mm-hmm. storage place where That's we right. have a special yeah, key yeah. to get into. And we, I think we need to see that in a lot of our buildings because not everybody's going to want to head to the store. It kind of defeats the purpose if you're trying mm-hmm. to get something delivered to your home to have to go to the store and pick it up. Right. Um, but we need a, a safer way to receive these packages because mm-hmm. it's a pretty easy theft ring, hey? Follow mm-hmm. the delivery truck and <laughs> it, it's pick happened, up the boxes. It's happened to me before in like another apartment building I was in where, you know, Amazon clearly said it's been delivered. And I was I was looking around uh, the, the front <laughs> and I was just like, I, I don't think so. But um, the new building I, I'm in is interesting because I, I finally realized it's actually the Amazon guy who clued me in when he called me on my phone, I said, I'll, I'll be there in five minutes. I'll be there in five minutes. He's like, well, just push the button on your phone and I can just come in uh, because they have like kind of the new system on this brand new building. Oh, that okay. So I, I was happy with that there. Um, well, why don't we take it over to uh, maybe we, we can complain some more. That's what Canadians love doing, especially when it comes to telecom, because, of course, we have a new report out for the Commission for Complaints for Telecom Television Services and revealed that complaints against all of Canada's telecom and cable providers, it was up 35% from last year, totaling almost 20,000 complaints. Uh, that's a brand new record. Are you guys feeling uh, a, a lot more willing to complain about any of the issues that you guys are facing with your uh, phones? I, I complain all the time, even on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> about our uh, internet service providers. Um, I, I will say that's that's 52 complaints a day. These are people who have obviously complained to their ISP before they go all the way to the commission to complain. So these are these are people who are very upset about their service. Uh, we obviously don't know the stats into the chat bots and the TELUS, for instance, support rooms of people complaining. But in glue classes, and we do it every glue class where we talk about the internet, we ask people, how's it going with your ISP? Mm-hmm. Do you like your service? No hands go up, very mm-hmm. few hands go up. Uh, do you have a complaint about your service? Is it what you expect, et cetera? And there's just this general in the glue world is really solid and strong uh, discontent with how ISPs are treating them, with how they are lacking in transparency on the services they're getting. They're not supporting customers with limited digital skills to understand they need to upgrade their hardware, or they might be grandfathered into a plan that is more expensive than current ones on the market, and no one's mm-hmm. giving them the heads up. And and on that note, too, we say, okay, well, just don't forget, you can call your ISP and, and try to negotiate a better deal. And in a classroom of 40 people, we consistently get six people who have called in and saved between 10 and $60 a month. Wow. So if, and I understand that TELUS and Bell and all Shaw and everybody are making money for their shareholders. But in a country where we have limited ISP choices, I think they need to have a little more respect for the customer. And I believe if they did they might have a less adversarial role with their customers. Yeah, do you think the trick is just more competition, Matthew? Do you think if we could boost that even more, we would have maybe some of these providers trying to do even better customer service, make things even clearer to their customers if that's what one of the big issues is? Yeah, so um, we do have an oligopoly in terms of our telecom services here in uh, Canada and the thing, one of the things about oligopolies is that everyone tends to benefit. Anyone within the oligopoly tends to benefit more if no one uh, competes quite 
too hard uh, because that, that will hit everyone's margins. Uh, in the past two weeks, I've simultaneously had uh, uh, one uh, fellow at a place I was contracting at uh, comment that his wife kept buying, I think it was a Bell stock, because she was saying, look how much we're paying. They've got to be making money, so I want to be in on that action. Uh, you know, small retail investor, of course. And uh, from another colleague was like, wow, I'm paying way too much for internet. You know, Matthew, who do you use? And how much are you paying per month? So um, so this is very timely, this, uh, this report. Uh, it would not surprise me if the number of Canadians or proportion of Canadians who are asking friends, you know, what are my better options is, is higher still, far higher still than the number of people who, who risk that confrontation of going to the, the, uh, the ISP, to their uh, telecom services provider, because Canadians tend not to like conflict, unlike, say, New Yorkers. And uh, so I think that's, that's just, uh, it's very accurate. And, um, uh, you know, one hopes that we can get uh, happier customers ultimately. Yeah, we're, we're, we don't have enough competition, absolutely, and it's never going to be a race to the bottom in terms mm-hmm. of price for this internet service providers. Uh, so there could be, though, a race for the best customer experience. Would mm-hmm. that cost you a whole lot? Telus, Shaw, Bell, mm-hmm. really? To change your scripts, to change the attitude of your callers, to actually mm-hmm. answer your chat bots? It's a chat bot. Two-hour waits on a chat bot over at Telus, wow. Shaw, Bell. Those are the three that we are seeing in the glue world a lot. So biggest complaints in the glue world, Shaw, number one biggest mm-hmm. ISP complaints. Number right. two is TELUS, Bell, et cetera, well, fall below. And that, market you know, share, probably. Yeah, market share for sure. But interesting it's a very thorny issue. It's oh, difficult. I, I alluded to me being a new building, and I can tell you, um, getting internet in a new suite, that, that's not a fun prospect to do. Huh. I think uh, – I, I won't name the provider, uh, but uh, I think their initial estimate was going to take seven weeks. And I was like, let's talk, guys. That the Soviet Union? Because it's such a yeah. weird thing. It's so rare to ask for internet in an apartment. Like, what? Yeah. Obviously, it should be almost yeah. like an immediate one guy moves out, the other guy moves in, internet gets switched over. Well, the, the weird thing was, is um, it, it's a brand new building, so I'm literally the first person to ever live in this particular oh, suite. Oh, okay. So they, oh, okay. okay. still, that's it's, different. It's, but yeah. Yeah. But it was still seven weeks, and so I, I talked them down. It still was 10 days without any sort of internet in your home. Wow. It was freeing. It was like I, I read <laughs> more than I had ever at home. Your cellular like, data bill went up higher than it's oh, ever been. Believe me, that, that was another cause for another complaint that I should have sent to a different provider. But mm. uh, Sorry, Matthew, you were about to say uh, one thing. I, I, I think I kind of interrupted you there. Do you, is it still on your mind? Uh, yes, so there was. Uh, I I do wonder. I do I do suspect that the rise of social media in the past decade, especially with uh, with millennials, uh, would make people more likely to launch complaints. Uh, there is a definite distinction I know between folks who are somewhat older than me and the folks I know who are somewhat younger than me in terms of the proportion of people willing to make a complaint, and perhaps the the fact that people self-publish their thoughts publicly on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, on other platforms I'm not even aware of, uh, makes people more willing to lodge complaints and say, hey, you know, I deserve to be uh, listened to. Whereas uh, folks I know um, who tend to be older, uh, growing up in a, in a world of oligopoly, you know, broadcast media, uh, they never send letters to the editor. They, they, they rarely complain, even if they're quietly frustrated. So it, it could be healthier, really, in terms of getting the true 
amount of frustration from the customer that we can hear now versus people used to put up with it back in the day. And I think people are just, you know, shouting into the abyss on social media and it kind of makes you feel good to make the complaint and mm. you move on with your day. I think those 19,000 people who officially complained, mm. that's a huge number of people right, who are official really, complaint. really yeah. upset to actually yeah. Google who do I complain to about my ISP in Canada right. until this article I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. That I wouldn't have known who to call. So. I didn't know that existed really. So now until we, the you know. Well, now that you you found out, it's such an obvious name: a commission for complaints. I, now I know. <laughs> I'm going to get that it on be, my redial. That would be an amazing ministry, you know, the minister of complaints. Yeah. Something from Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, guys, we'll just wrap it up here very quickly. But uh, we have uh, in Australia a new AI-powered camera. It has been launched to detect distracted drivers. I can understand maybe privacy concerns, but what do you guys think about just safety issues? Would something like this be needed for the roads here in British Columbia? Where are you at with this, Matthew? Sure. Well, um, part of the uh, the effect of following the electric vehicle sector is that you wind up um, looking at road safety stats, and after many after decades of reduced pedestrian deaths or deaths overall from motor vehicle accidents or incidents, uh, deaths with the rise of cell phones flattened out and began rising again. Uh, this is even after you account for the, the rising number of millions of vehicle kilometers traveled. So technology has definitely made us um, less safe drivers, uh, people who are inattentive. I can see the logic for using AI to, um, to monitor and to, to police the fact that you don't want to have distracted drivers. Um, as with anything, I do think there will be some privacy concerns that need to be mulled over uh, because, uh, well, that's just the kind of guy I am. But uh, I do think it would be, uh, it would save more lives to have people know that they can't really trick a, a small camera embedded inside traffic lights and so forth. Yeah, and uh, the stats are interesting. 77 people die a year in British Columbia from distracted driving, according Mm -hmm. to ICBC. Over 25, 25 to 27% fatal car crashes, according Mm -hmm. to ICBC, are caused by distracted drivers. So these are, people die because of this. You -hmm. you don't have, uh, it's not a fair, reasonable expectation of privacy in your car Mm -hmm. if you're going to be doing something like distracted driving and potentially killing other people on the road. Mm -hmm. But having said that, we do have a somewhat of an expectation of privacy. I don't expect to be filmed every intersection I drive through. Mm -hmm. Even if the company promises to delete those images um, after a day or two, you know, we don't want to be going into the surveillance state on the promises of the of the for-profit companies who are beholden to shareholders mm-hmm. and the word that they're going to delete these images, um, not uh, harvest data from these images, et cetera. This needs to be well and truly regulated under our um, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We need to have a really open and national conversation about how we want surveillance technologies to enhance our safety in our buildings, our streets, and our cities, um, and not just go with the first company who happens to get a foothold into the market. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really loving that technology can help keep us safe, but we need really important conversations around how we're going to introduce that into society. And we see now we see in the state, cities like Portland saying no facial recognition technology mm-hmm. in government or business, period. Mm-hmm. Um, some certain cities in California and New York State. So the cities are taking over this conversation in the states, and and I would like to see us having that 
at, mm-hmm. at, hopefully at a national level, um, to bring this technology into our life that doesn't set us on this slippery slope of always surveilled, surveilled right? right? So I can... I don't want to have distracted driving. I don't want to worry about someone plowing into me because they're hitting their emoji button on their cell phone. But I also don't want to be caught drinking a coffee and be flagged as someone who's drinking an alcoholic beverage, for Mm -hmm. instance. And then one other note, just as a fun fact, I was really impressed with Volvo's vision statement for how they see their cars um, being involved in no fatal collisions Mm -hmm. in the coming years. And the interior sensors of all Volvo cars that will hit the market next year will help guard against distracted driving and drunk driving. So that's an interesting Mm -hmm. way as citizens we can bring this technology into our personal life, inside our own vehicles, Mm -hmm. to protect ourselves and the public around us. Yeah. The driver monitoring is a feature in, I think it's safe to say, all of the driver assistance or, or almost all the driver assistance packages being uh, rolled out by automakers because there's a responsibility, especially if there's a, a feature which is offering lane keeping. You kind of need to make sure you're not winding up making, you know, creating a distracted driver who has overconfident and therefore starts texting because they assume that their vehicle will basically execute the. Well, bad word, will basically drive correctly until they get to work or, 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 or get home. So yeah, there's definitely a, um, a very positive measure on the automaker side there. One thought I had with respect to AI is that the AI is most likely going to use, it's, it's going to have a certain resolution of the photograph and use uh, AI to basically refine or predict what that image actually was. And I would be very interested to know... Um, uh, like, I'm not sure if BIV has ever done pixelated interviews to, to protect people's identities, but, you know, if there's an algorithm which can can do that uh, do that image processing and there is a, a relatively standard algorithm that, uh, that you know, video engineers use for concealing people's identities, would that force a reshift into how you do this protection because you don't want someone to be able to reverse engineer what someone looked like based on image processing that was perfected, you know, based on taking, you know, uh, low, lower resolution car stills and being able to you know reconfigure the face based off of well, these of are incredible like cameras. They're taking these pictures at night in mm-hmm. terrible weather conditions with glare off the screen. So it's yeah. amazing technology that's only going to get better, cheaper, faster, right? right. Um, and, and what we know is the AI is going to flag the image of the cell phone in the driver's seat, the driver's region of the car, I presume, and flag it and send it over to a human for violation. Uh, follow up is that human a policeman is that just some call center guy whose job Mm -hmm. is to take a look at the ai data that's come across his screen so those are important questions to have and and then what's happening with the data after what if you can see something inappropriate what if you do see the person's face um so a lot of questions it's it's and we can only assume the technology is going to become amazing Mm -hmm. now it's good it's going to become amazing amazing. so we need to be very careful about what these data pools are doing and what these companies are doing with these images. I can bet you um, AccuCensus, the company we're talking about, they um, are they simply going to be passing on this AI information to law enforcement or are they going to be doing something with this trove, massive trove of millions of images? Mm-hmm. What, what data is going to be harvested from that? That's something I would like to know as a driver in well, Australia today. Maybe we'll find uh, some of that technology to buy in a Cyber Monday deal next year. <laughs> uh, we'll just have to wait. But uh, I want to thank both of you guys, uh, Linda and Matthew, for joining us on the show. 
Thanks You're for having welcome. me. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. That is Glue Technology Society's Linda Focus and Electron Communications, Matthew Klippenstein. And stay with us. Dan Sutton, he is the CEO of Tantalus Labs. He joins us right after this. Joining us today, as he usually is every other week, it is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so we had a solid story from my colleague at BIV, Glenn Korstrom. It was delving into the BC government's plans to levy this 20% tax on all vape-related products. And so it's going to restrict access to those products and also add deterrence like mandated plain packaging. So interesting stuff going on. But I think this is raising some questions about what it means for the black market moving forward. Maybe some focus on some of those nicotine products that I think people are looking at. But what do you think this spells for maybe the cannabis? industry, if there's going to be restrictions on vape products, which I think for a lot of people is turning into more of kind of the preferred consumption use. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, And we've seen backlash against vaporization in general, especially nicotine-oriented products. Uh, In the States, there's been similar legislation passed. And I think ultimately this is because some would accuse large vaporization companies like Vipe or Juul of getting an entire new generation of people addicted to nicotine. It was super uncool to smoke when I was in high school. It's really uncool to smoke now. Uh, But vaping uh, was so taken on that, you know, teachers are confiscated these things in class and nicotine is a chemically addicted addictive drug if you stop taking it then you're going to go through withdrawal symptoms which is drastically different uh, than cannabis which um, you know might be a little frustrating if you couldn't have your vape for a few days but you're certainly not going to go through the same degree of chemical withdrawal so uh, it's unfortunate that the bc government decided to enact this style of policy because all it really does is disincentivize the regulated and proven vaporization products that necessitate a lack of additives that's true of the legal cannabis vaporization uh, industry and not of the unregulated market. And also uh, for companies like Tantalus Labs, <clears throat> we have to do a thorough vetting of our supply chain. All of the hardware that goes into these vaporization products needs to be absent heavy metals, absent cadmium, pharmaceutical grade glass, pharmaceutical grade stainless steel. We've really gone through a, a massive R&D process to ensure that the highest levels of feasible safety are are concurrent with with our vaporization offerings. So when you levy a tax, you're simply disincentivizing an already very heavily taxed uh, commodity in the in the form of vape pens. We pay tariffs, we pay testing fees, we pay, you know, employee benefits, thing, things that uh, the unregulated market is not beholden to. And so what I think the British Columbian uh, government might not realize is that the black market for vaporization here in British Columbia is alive and well. There's a lot of products there easily accessible. There are delivery services that could bring them right here to this studio in 20 minutes if we wanted to. Uh, So unfortunately, I just think this idea of of taxing this industry before it's even had a chance to get started will disincentivize consumers and will ultimately incentivize the black market. Yeah, if there's one thing we've learned just with regards to maybe even revenue numbers that the BC government is driving from the cannabis industry right now is that the black market, whether that's, you know, the uh, products or also kind of the adjacent sort of products there. It's alive and well in British Columbia. I think British Columbians are smart enough to figure out ways, even if they like the cheaper option, if if it's not even regulated. It it does seem as though probably about 85 to 90% of the cannabis purchased in British Columbia today is still 
uh, illicit market product. But yesterday we saw John Horgan uh, report with Black Press Media um, that he wants to advocate for the transition of those producers. He wants to see economic development happen. And ultimately, and this is his quote, that he's going to take the economic development of this new industry in hand and away from the federal government. I'm not sure if the federal government actually ever had an economic development mandate, um, but John Horgan's volunteered that he wants to do that. And as our, as our sitting premier, that's, that's a huge step forward and a political message that we have not heard from the British Columbian government before. Uh, but ultimately it's sort of talking about both sides of your mouth when you say we want to encourage the economic development of this industry while also levying a substantial consumer tax on a product as central to the future of, of cannabis as vaporization. It's very likely that 10 to 15% of cannabis consumption in British Columbia will be from vaporization once that market is mature. That's true in uh, in California. It's true in urban jurisdictions, rural jurisdictions. It's, it seems to be pretty, pretty synonymous across the board. So vaporization is really important uh, as well as the economic development of the industry here in BC. Well, I think a lot of people argue that the regulations that the BC government's putting out there, uh, the, the strongest in Canada uh, that we, we've seen of this, and, and there are some legitimate concerns about some of these vaping products and, and just kind of health factors that would be involved in this. What happens, though, if we see other provinces maybe look at BC to adopt this? What does it mean for Canada in general when it comes to specifically maybe kind of the cannabis-related vape products? Yeah, so... I think first and foremost, we should probably establish that it is widely accepted. Uh, there's British medical journals that Health Canada themselves have suggested that vaporization is a healthier alternative to smoking. Uh, probably abstinence from all inhaled consumption would be the ideal outcome for, for those uh, health bodies. But ultimately, it, it seems it seems accurate that certainly vaping nicotine is far less dangerous than smoking cigarettes. Uh, and although the smoking of cannabis has never actually been correlated with emphysema, lung cancer, or heart disease in the same way that cigarettes have, vaporization is probably a safer mechanism in which to consume based on the sort of aggregate body of knowledge that we have today. Uh, the, the best way to mitigate the risks associated with vaping is to avoid vapes that have been contaminated either with adulterants or fillers, uh, things like vitamin E, acetate, and there's actually... You can suspend them in oils as well, and inhaling lipids is not good for you. Um, and then also make sure that the hardware is free of things like cadmium uh, and other heavy metals. The regulated vaporization channels are the only places where you can guarantee that you're getting the safest vaporization option if you do choose to vaporize. So other jurisdictions across Canada you know, if they were to adopt similar taxes, all else the same, they're ultimately incentivizing people to choose unregulated products that may have those heavy metals, that may have residual pesticides, that may have uh, fillers and additives, and that, you know, eventually it does incur costs on the government anyway. They've got to pay for healthcare costs. They've got to pay for uh, the fallout of, of people consuming those things and getting sick, and it's just not something that we, any of us want to see. Please do buy va regulated vape carts, PSA. I know that I'm an industry voice, but ultimately it is substantially safer when it comes to the, the risk categories associated with contaminants. So then, as an industry voice, would you prefer to see the government just scrap any sort of regulation, or do you think that there is some sort of like uh, middle ground that you can find to address some of the concerns that the government does have? 
Well, when it comes to things like reiterating plain packaging, that's not actually a policy direction because Health Canada's already got that covered. They've, right. they've in- instituted plain packaging. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure that if we had elaborate packaging that many more people would elect to vaporize. The people that are currently vaporizing will probably continue to vaporize. We might see a small um, small bump in that. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you, you want to incentivize people to make the the most socially progressive choices, the choices that are most likely to be protective to their health, the choices that are most likely to support, um, you know, the the benefits that legalization can bring. So I absolutely advocate for uh, for policy that encourages this nascent industry. Ultimately, that's what John Horgan is saying in in his most recent commentary. Yet the taxation of a of a product segment that doesn't even exist yet, in anticipation of its size, uh, seems regressive to me. Well, you know, if economic development is on the mind of the government right now, maybe let's shift our focus over to the BC Chamber of Commerce. Uh, They are putting out uh, policy ideas towards the government with regards to facilitating the transition of the smaller microcultivators, the craft growers into the regulated markets. Uh, Is this kind of the right track, the the right direction that we should be moving right now? Yeah, it's great to see the BC Chamber of Commerce advocating. I've been lucky to to have a few meetings with them and communicate with them on on several fronts. And they certainly are taking the perspective that the small producer is the essential component to this cannabis economy that's that's currently missing, uh, which I wholeheartedly agree with. When you see small producers um, able to to sell their products through farm gate sales or at their uh, at their production facilities um, and also enrich their local communities, you will get these sort of interesting community hubs we've spoken about on the show before. And I, I think that's super compelling. That's that's sort of what we want to see is is a cellular, diversified, decentralized production infrastructure across British Columbia of many small producers that are all enriching their sort of local economies, hiring local people, using local designers, local lawyers, local accountants, all those sorts of things. Um, and to hear the ambition from the BC government's voice. I think it's the first time we've really heard this from this administration, that they want to see these uh, these operators flourish. Now, there are a lot of systemic challenges. For sure, there's complexity around licensing, especially around timelines. I think Health Canada has done a good job of simplifying the licensing process, but now there are so many people that have jumped into the queue that it does seem as though, uh, even for our own license amendments at Tamilus Labs, there still is quite a protracted timeline. They, they need a little bit more bandwidth. Um, and yeah, this is a step in the right direction. I mean, one day I hope that I can walk, you know, through a tour of uh, a town in South Vancouver Island and go to one or two or three or five uh, cool cultivation uh, operations. You know, maybe some are indoors, maybe some are, are more far more anted and get a taste and get a flavor for who these people are, what makes them tick, why are they interested in this industry, why have they dedicated their lives in many cases to cannabis, uh, and that's certainly something that would be positive for British Columbians and ultimately substantially positive for our tourism economy. Well, one of the issues, though, of course, is the, the regime that we have here in British Columbia and that, you know, all these products are going to have to go through distributors first, though. Does that just prove to be uh, one hurdle too many at this point? Do you think that there's room for a little bit of fl- flexibility moving? forward? That's certainly what the BC Chamber of Commerce has advocated. And I don't think it needs to be a wholesale change to a fully privatized system. There is some advantage for mid-sized producers and even smaller producers selling to one distributor who then handles that distribution. I think uh, in alcohol, you'd get a lot of beer brands that advocate for that as well. But let's add an omni-channel opportunity 
in and amongst that distribution system where people can sell directly to their consumers at their point of production, where people might be able to facilitate their own e-commerce. This is uh, all things that the BC Chamber has advocated for. And ultimately, just a bit of a looser grip, recognizing that what are the what are the ultimate negative social impacts that could possibly happen from from legalized cannabis? Well, I don't think we're going to see panic in the streets. I don't think we're going to see you know mass incarceration because of violent crime. Uh, it seems as though adults in British Columbia are able to handle their cannabis, and so we don't need quite as tight a grip on this as as perhaps we originally envisioned. Do you think maybe we could point to the craft brewery model that we have here in uh, British Columbia as an example of things seeming to work out within society? It, it does seem like a good analog, and it's one that we've seen quite a lot of political loosening around, especially in the last 10 or 15 years. Some advocates of the craft beer industry would say that it's because of like less regulations that this industry really can thrive now. Uh, but the idea that I can go into a brewery buy one of their beers, maybe eat a pretzel and leave with a six pack, uh, all, you know, fully within the, the, <laughs> within the full safety band. I'm not, I'm not putting myself at risk, uh, because I, I know how to handle a brewery. I think that that definitely extends to cannabis. Do you think it's almost a, a societal thing, a cultural thing? The longer that cannabis is uh, regulated in the recreational market, maybe people will come around to it much like people kind of understand what limits are with regards to say beers. Absolutely. And I mean, most cannabis consumers today are, are they've been consuming for longer than legalization has been around and, and they understand how to handle strong cannabis. And, and I think over time, we will see these laws relax and we will see the idea, uh, the, the opportunity for consumption lounges and, and bars and restaurants being able to sell cannabis products, not necessarily smokable cannabis, but cannabis products nonetheless. But the argument that it's all sort of going to happen and it'll loosen up over time, it, that that confounds the reality that ultimately other provinces will get ahead of this. Other provinces will be more successful. Uh, we are seeing, you know, across various industries, brain drain, so to speak, of, of large companies leaving Vancouver and, and going to, uh, to Toronto, for instance. And that will happen in cannabis. In many cases, it is happening in cannabis. So BC needs to be known uh, much the same way we are for our tech infrastructure and for facilitating technology in this province as a cannabis-friendly business environment. Right now, we don't have any evidence that it's a cannabis-friendly business environment. And it takes more than just uh, political speak to actually make that, make that a reality. We need to address some of the systemic issues. And uh, I'm really proud to make myself a resource for, for politicians and for the BC Chamber as well. Uh, but we all need to start speaking up because ultimately over the next five years, this, this may become a mainstay of our economy or it may get, it may get shipped east. Well, excellent. Uh, Dan, as always, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. That is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs, and that is it for the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want you to also maybe tell your friends and your family, follow us on Twitter or go to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and help even more people find us that way. For now, I'm Tyler Orton, and we'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>